You are listening to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa Graf, and today we have a special episode for you, sort of a Thanksgiving special, as it were. Back in the fall of 2015, while Allison and I were getting our start on college radio, we interviewed Dr. Wesley Ferreira, the Associate Professor of Clarinet at Colorado State University. Uh, he had lots and lots to tell us about clarinet, uh, about music, about classical music and its place in the modern repertoire. And uh, we thought that it would be a fantastic idea to re-release that interview for everybody, for all of our listeners here on the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast today. So uh, what follows is a recording, a re-release recording of Dr. Wesley Ferreira's interview in the fall of 2013. Happy holidays, everyone. Please enjoy. to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is The Coffee House, and I'm DJ Kirby Java. And I'm DJ Earl Gray. And we are in the studio today with a very special guest. This is Dr. Wesley Ferrer, Associate Professor of Clarinet here at Colorado State University. Uh, Dr. Ferrer, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for coming in. So uh, we're going to talk about yourself and your clarinet career and all of your myriad awesome recording projects that you've done so first off uh why don't you give us a little overview of yourself when did you first begin to play the clarinet and why did you pick this awesome instrument <laughs> well i first started playing when i was um 10 years old actually I'd, a few years before that i asked my dad who was a amateur saxophonist um whether I could start music and he was he was pretty excited he was ready to teach me but he was he was pretty hard he was pretty hard on me and I think as an eight-year-old I got a little discouraged uh then when I was 10 I uh I got the courage again there was that love of music in me and I asked him again I'm I'm ready for this I'm ready for this and uh so I began at age 10 yeah to play the clarinet nice have you played any other instruments or just the clarinet you know, uh, I think like any musician, uh, you've dabbled in other things, uh, saxophone, uh, piano. Of course, piano lessons are a big part of, I think, um, uh, for a lot of uh, oh, yeah. young musicians, you know, uh, piano lessons. Whether you like them or not. Right. And then, you know, I a little bit of, uh, of a drums, like in rock bands and uh -huh. things like that. So, But mostly the clarinet is what I've devoted my musical energies too. Did you play in uh, like school bands and ensembles and stuff like that? I did. You know... Uh, and when I mentioned I, I started at the age of 10, to, to some people that might sound a little bit older than um, what uh, students here in the United States uh, start on. Um, I actually didn't start in middle school band, and that's how most students start. Uh, I mentioned my father is a saxophonist, and uh, my, my cultural heritage is Portuguese. We're Portuguese. And um, 
he played in a Portuguese civic wind band. Um, they're all, all all over Portugal. There are Portuguese uh, wind bands. And when uh, he immigrated uh, to Canada, and a lot of Portuguese immigrants moved to Canada uh, and the United States as well, uh, they all started those civic wind bands. Uh, I should have mentioned you probably uh, hear it. I'm from Canada originally. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, my father played in the Civic Wind Band, and that's what I grew up uh, listening to and wanting to to play uh, music like them, uh, like him. And so I actually didn't start in school uh, bands. I started in these Portuguese Civic Wind Bands. But then I did play uh, in high schools, yeah, in jazz band and concert band. Nice. So after you graduated and you got all your degrees and stuff, what made you decide to teach at a university? Well, for me, you know, uh, going through the university system, studying as an undergraduate and then as a master's student and a doctoral student, you um, become very aware of what it's like to be in that system. And for me, it was very attractive to um, to teach. I really, really have always enjoyed teaching. Um, and also the opportunities that you have when you're uh, a professor at university there. You could play concertos uh, both with the school uh, ensembles Outside of the ensembles, there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration, uh, playing chamber music with colleagues uh, and students. And uh, so I like I like dabbling in a lot of things. I like I like doing a lot of things and being a professor allows me to to explore all of uh, all of that. So you didn't start like right out of out of school. A teaching, right? You, you didn't you conduct a band at some point? I did. You know, in between my master's and doctoral degrees, I uh, went back to Canada and began uh, conducting. Actually, I went back to conduct the uh, the wind band, the Portuguese wind band that I started in. Did that for two years. Um, got all of the musicians from the uh, province of Ontario, the Portuguese wind musicians, uh, and we put together a band uh, that we called the Portuguese Heritage Band Project, where we got some of the finest musicians uh, from those groups, and we made a recording project to document the Portuguese wind band music. Um, and then I also was conducting several other community ensembles. So I did that, and then that led uh, from there into my first teaching position where I actually taught clarinet, taught saxophone, and also conducted the wind uh, groups, the wind bands at, at that first university I was at in Canada before coming here to CSU. Cool. cool. Um, so you mentioned at CSU there's a lot of collaboration that's available. Um, can you tell us maybe like how you collaborate with the students or faculty there? Oh, sure. There's just, you know, it's such a vibrant musical community here at, at, uh, in Fort Collins, but at CSU, uh, the University Center of the Arts. You know, I think sometimes uh, students and professors forget about uh, right across college uh, Ave, there's the beautiful University Center for the Arts, and uh, there's just so much happening there. So absolutely, you know, uh, for myself personally, uh, collaborating with other faculty members, including our uh, um, our faculty composer, Dr. James David, and um, playing in ensembles with other faculty members, uh, participating with students. You know, just recently, I uh, we played, uh, we had a new music ensemble concert where myself and another uh, professor, Opal professor, sat in with the students and played on stage. So there's, uh, it's really fun. Absolutely. So on your last CD, Madison Avenue, you recorded a few of Dr. James David's pieces, right? Absolutely. You know, and actually, uh, actually uh, we recorded it with the CSU Wynn Symphony. So it was uh, 
uh, really great project recording uh, Dr. David's uh, clarinet concerto with the CSU students in the Wind Symphony. It was uh, it turned out to be a really great recording, and this is a really great piece. Yeah, so we're going to play uh, one of those movements here. It's a three-movement work, and we're going to play the last movement, which is entitled Pontiac GTO. So uh, Dr. David wrote these pieces to be evocative of different cars and road travel. And he says of this one that the Pontiac GTO is the first true muscle car. Many forms of American music are on display from funk to metal to hard bop with a special nod to the legendary Artie Shaw. So this is Dr. David's uh, Auto 66 Movement 3 GTO.
Welcome back to the Coffee House, where we are interviewing Dr. Wesley Ferreira of the Colorado State University School of Music. He is the clarinet professor there. And we just heard the third movement of his Auto 66 concerto that was written by our resident composer at CSU, James David. And performed by our resident band. Uh, the CSU Wind Symphony. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a pretty... Awesome recording. Uh, can you tell us what it was like to get into recording and how does one go about doing that? Well, I think the best thing um, is to just throw yourself into it. I think sometimes in life um, people are hesitant to get into uh, doing things that um, seem bigger, seem bigger. And at first for me, it was like that a little bit. I thought, wow, recording, how would I ever do this? And it just got to a point where I said, you know, I'm just going to throw myself into it. I'm not going to really, really think too hard about the gravity of what I was doing, which is uh, officially putting yourself out there in recorded format for everyone to hear and to be recorded forever and ever. I know that sounds kind of (laughs) deep, but, um, you know, I just got involved because um, I wanted to uh, record uh, music that had never been recorded before. And, and those were the works uh, on my Madison Avenue CD. These are pieces that I either commissioned or they were pieces that I really admired that there were no recordings of. And I thought, you know, these pieces really need to be recorded. Um, and uh, I want people to hear these pieces. So that's kind of, I threw myself into that and then uh, contacted the right people um, about how can I get involved? Uh, how can I, How can I actually do this? And then away I went. So is there a lot of legal things that have to go into recording, like copyrights? And- there are a little bit, you know. Um, you do need to get the permission from the composers. Um, and so for, for the works on, on that CD, I knew most of the composers, you know. And there, was a, there were a few, actually, funny story. Uh, there's a piece uh, that was written in the 1970s um, on the recording. And it's an unaccompanied clarinet piece. But it was by a composer who, who uh, is deceased, and from Serbia. So uh, I think thanks to the internet, I was able to um, find out uh, that he taught at uh, university in Budapest. And so I went ahead and I just called the secretary there and said, do you speak English? <laughs> and, uh, and luckily she switched over and said yes. And then I asked, you know, I said, I'm trying to get in, in contact with, uh, with the, uh, the family of the late Abradovic. And, uh, and she was very helpful. And she said, yes, I have his, um, his family's uh, information. And so um, she gave me their mailing address Ooh. of uh, like his, his wife. And so just, you know, it was, it kind of took you back where I actually wrote a letter and put it in the mail and then waited. And then I, I waited for months and months. And then I got a letter back saying, you know, we'd be, uh, this is from the son and the mother saying, we'd be, we'd be so happy if you would record his, his pieces. So that was the only little tricky one. Otherwise the the composers are generally really happy when you're, when you're going to record their work. So they'll give you that permission. Oh, that's cool. So how long did this whole process take? You mentioned that one take months and months, but, uh, for, for the whole Madison Avenue CD, how long were you working on it? It was about two years. Um, sometimes these projects take longer because you're commissioning works. So I actually have 
four projects on the go right now. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and I label them uh, project one, two, three, and four. Uh, and some of these projects I know, like project four, may take three years to get off the ground. Um, and so I'm working on all these things at the same time. And uh, sometimes it takes time because you're uh, waiting to uh, get the piece. Sometimes it takes time because you're waiting to coordinate um, uh, like recording space and working with uh, other musicians like pianists and, and their time. So um, I have a, quite a lot of piece, uh, a lot of projects on the, in the pipeline. So yeah, but usually it takes about, uh, I would say two years from first thinking about it, two years or more from first thinking about it to, to finally having the product in your hand. So this was, um, you mentioned this was part of your CD, Madison Avenue. Uh, what was the inspiration for that piece, and why is it called Madison Avenue? Well, the piece Madison Avenue, so I was thinking about all these pieces that I wanted to put on the program and I uh, on the uh, recording, and I knew that they were all going to be new pieces, and so I commissioned a composer, Nick DeBerardino, that I uh, started getting a really great relationship with. I really liked his music. And so at the time, I uh, had, I was, still am, but it was like season five of Mad Men, and I was totally <laughs> enthralled. I was just, it was just right up my alley. And so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to um, commission a piece uh, about uh, that era? And so I asked the composer uh, to write a work uh, entitled Madison Avenue, kind of base it on that advertising uh, era, and... Uh, he wrote a really great piece, and so I just thought that would be a nice uh, title track to the album. All right, yeah. so we're going to play that title track for you. We're going to do some underwriting first, but right after that will be Madison Avenue.
right. This is The Coffee House, and we are interviewing Dr. Wesley Ferreira. You just heard his title track from his CD project, Madison Avenue, and that was written by Nick DiBerardino. That was also another really cool piece. Yeah. Seems like kind of a theme with you that you really like the jazzy sort of things and newer things. Yeah, I think I, I, I do. I enjoy um, music as dance. I enjoy kind of the groove that you find in music, whether it's uh, traditional jazz or klezmer or even, you know, uh, what we would consider just uh, quote-unquote classical music, uh, Mozart. There's still always that kind of groove, rhythmic element that you can play with to be musical. I really enjoy that. So speaking of grooves, you recently went on a tour that you called Grooves. Um, so what's it, what's it like going on tour? Yeah, well, you know, it, that definitely depends on how long uh, the tour is. That one, that that tour you're speaking of, was about a two week tour, and I played, uh, I performed uh, about seven, maybe seven or eight concerts, uh, kind of one after another, uh, traveling. Um, from city to city by car, um, you know, sometimes getting there a few hours before you're going to perform. It was really exciting. It was uh, great to share that music with um, with people from different places. Um, it was a real test, uh, kind of a grueling test of uh, being able to be mentally sharp every day and wanting to give it your best in every performance. So who initiates that process? That's something I've always been really interested in when we get uh, like master class performers coming in from all over the country. Uh, who contacts who first? Do you just say like call up all the colleges on the east coast and say hey i want to come and perform for you it's sometimes a little bit like that sometimes it's a, a little bit of them asking uh you know hey it would be great to have you out here and then maybe they might suggest a date and then from there you can uh coordinate um some other stops so i imagine it's just going to be the same as uh, any kind of like just kind of any rock band kind of thing too putting together pieces here and there some of it is your doing some of it is through the help of the contacts you have there so that's usually how it how it goes. So what is the major difference that you'd say between performing live and performing in a recording setting? Yeah. You know, I think ideally it should be the same, but I would say the biggest thing is the mental side of it because, um, you know, when you're performing live, um, you get one shot at it. You know, you get one shot at performing, uh, that part correctly uh, in your mind. And, uh, Whereas a recording, you know, you have maybe a few different opportunities. You have many takes that you can that you can take. Um, you know, there's the live energy from the audience that you get. Whereas um, in in performing live, whereas when in recording, it's usually a very quiet room, and so there's a lot of silence, and so you don't necessarily have that energy. But as I said earlier, I think it's just a mental thing, and I've become a lot better as the more experience I have performing live, the more experience I have recording, and just making it all the same, making it all you know what i'm just performing and i'm going to perform it the same way i think um sometimes people get uh, trapped into thinking okay here's a recording i have to approach this differently you might get nervous in a way that you've never been nervous before so how do you deal with that i think the key is to just keep it um you know the same frame of mind for both that way it's both equally exciting so what's it like being represented by a label, in your case, Potenza Music? You know, what's great about that is that you get the support, I think. You know, uh, especially in this day and age, it's easy. It's actually quite easy to um, 
to put out albums without um, uh, representation, and um, and that works. You know, uh, that means you have to do a lot of the legwork yourself, which is fine. But sometimes being uh, with a label it just means you have the support, whether it be advertising, whether it be sales, um, uh, that sort of thing. So it is nice. Great. So what is the inspiration for your newest recording project that you're currently working on? Well, the inspiration is my heritage. You know, I, I mentioned that I, uh, from a Portuguese heritage, grown up in Canada. Um, and so uh, I grew up just listening to Portuguese music and playing Portuguese music. And so uh, a number of years ago when I started my doctoral um, degree and I thought about what kind of final uh, project I wanted to uh, uh, participate in, I thought again, uh, looking back to my heritage, and I thought, well, what kind of uh, pieces uh, for for clarinet uh, exhibit the folk music style that I grew up listening to? And really, there were there were none. Honestly, there were none because I did uh, re- uh, search and do a lot of research. And so I just decided to create this medium. So what I did for my doctoral project is to commission composers to write pieces featuring the clarinet that exhibit some element of Portuguese folk music style. And so I create, uh, I, uh, with their help, we created these pieces, and now it's ongoing where I am just uh, almost constantly commissioning pieces. Uh, and uh, now I'm recording them. I'm recording them. And so I hope in the near future, in the next year or two, uh, to have this new album out that, uh, again, pieces featuring the clarinet exhibiting Portuguese folk music elements. Awesome. So are there some premiere tracks that we could listen to yeah. from the CD. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, this 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 one piece here that we're going to listen to. Uh, it's called Seres Imaginarios 3, which basically means imaginary beings and the composer is Luis Cardoso. And uh you know, if I could just maybe tee up one of the tracks, um uh, the first one, uh, it's Olia Fim is uh based on Portuguese fado and uh fado is uh is uh by many considered the national music of Portugal. It's, um, you know, it's an urban folk uh, music, traditionally with a singer and guitar. And so this piece is clarinet and guitar. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Thank you. 
This is the Coffee House here in 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins, and we are in the studio today with the Associate Professor of Clarinet here at Colorado State University, Dr. Wesley Ferreira, and we're playing some of his uh, music from the new uh, from the newest album that he's recording that has never before been performed. So you're hearing some really fun sneak peeks, and this will album will be out, you say, in probably a year and a half? I would say so, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So this is uh, in co- entitled um, Series Imaginarios by... Louis Cardoso, could you tell us a little bit more about the piece? Yeah, so, you know, he based, all these titles are are really interesting, but they're all based on um, a book by Georges-Louis Borges called The Book of Imaginary Beings. And uh, this, the composer, Louis Cardoso, he was really interested in those books. And he's written um, a number of pieces now, Imaginary Beings pieces, and this is the third. And um, so all the titles are... Uh, of the of the movements are pretty descriptive, like that first one we just heard. Olafim is a a small ghost or goblin with four eyes, two of which face forward and two facing backwards, enabling it to see in all directions. Literally has eyes in the back of its head. That's that's the idea. Speed would make a good mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that you know the. The titles of the movements don't necessarily have any reflection on the style of the music being written, but it's always really. I always like it when composers put a kind of programmatic um, uh, ideas or stories behind their music. I really like that. Um, but that that movement that we just heard is based on a uh, called Fado Cuido, which is a running fado. So as you hear the guitar kind of with those like strums, ding ding, is you know the kind of that forward momentum. And there's a lot of ornamentation in this in the Fado Cuido. Uh, other movements in this piece, um, you know, the second movement is based on the what we call uh, Fado Cansão, which is a song. So it's very lyrical. And then the third movement, um, uh, Trasgo, uh, which is an imaginary being of small stature, which uses a red cape and possesses supernatural powers. Uh, Again, the music doesn't have uh, much to do with that, but this music of the third movement is based on dancing music from the northern northern mountains of Portugal. And um, usually this music is played with small flutes and drums. Um, It's very vigorous, and there's a lot of modal structures, but that's one of my favorite movements to the third movement. Great. All right, well, can we take a listen to that one then? Let's do it. All right. Well, then here's the third movement.
We're in the studio today with Dr. Wesley Ferreira, um, hearing some of his newest music that hasn't ever been heard by people outside of, you know, close friends and family. So, yeah. yeah so, so you're hearing a real treat this morning, getting a sneak peek of his upcoming album. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Dr. Ferreira, could you tell us a little bit about how you go about discovering the pieces that you don't commission for your recording sessions? Oh, sure. You know, um, new new music or new pieces that are being written right now really excite me. That really excites me because as an artist, I want to be involved in the creative process and I want to communicate music to others. And so playing music that has, has either never been uh, performed before, rarely performed, is uh, really exciting for me. So uh, along with commissioning new pieces, I'm always just searching for pieces that interest me. And so, you know, I'm online quite a bit. I'm talking to people about what kind of new new pieces they've heard. Um, you know, if I ever go and attend conferences, clarinet conferences, there are always a lot of performances. So I'm always really excited and make notes on the newest, on the newest pieces. Um, and so... You know, for my Madison Avenue CD, there were quite a few commissions, but there were also pieces that I just uh, uh, really spoke to me. Um, they weren't commissioned by me, but um, uh, I really enjoyed them, really enjoyed playing them. They hadn't been recorded yet, and so uh, I really wanted to share those. So as a composer, what can what can somebody do to get their music out to artists that might be performing a lot of these new pieces like yourself? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think composers... Um, you know, it's really um, searching for and attaching yourself to those performers who enjoy performing new works. You know, I think that's the big thing because uh, for a composer, um, you know, if you're finding performers who really like perform new music, chances are they're going to be interested and would be willing to perform your piece as well. And so, um, you know, the online community is really great for new music. Uh, specifically, you know, I mentioned things like Twitter. Uh, every Sunday night, actually, there's um, something called the hashtag MusoChat. And it's essentially new music performers and new music composers who are communicating to each other. There's a uh, moderator. They put out questions. And so, you know, through this new media, social media, um, again, I'm being even connected even more to, to composers that I – from faraway places throughout the country, throughout the world that I would have not known about their pieces. But I've noticed them really reaching out to new music performers um, yeah, or people who are inclined – to like to perform uh, pieces that were relatively new, re recently composed. So we're going to play uh, one of those pieces that you discovered for Madison Avenue. This will be Sonata for B-flat clarinet and piano um, by Nikola Rezanovic. Uh, before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, about the piece and why it's named? It's a very interesting uh, movement titles. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I found out after the fact that he these titles were um, – that he added the titles to these movements – after the piece has been had been written, but the first movement is one for the money, second movement is two for the show, third movement is three to get ready, and of course you can you go can, cat go exactly imagine <laughs> the last one. So uh, they're really uh, they're actually particularly they're um, I think they're descriptive of what the movements are. Particularly go cat go, it's really energetic and um, um, and uh, really dance like. Again, I like that a lot. And uh, I really like this piece. It hadn't been recorded before. And so, um, and I've got a lot of great response, you know, people who have listened to the recording and are, and are discovering it for the first time through my recording. I think that's a really special thing. And so I'm really proud of that. All right. So we'll let the listeners discover it here. And we'll be playing the fourth movement, Go Cat Go. 
You're listening to The Coffee House here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins, where we're playing clarinet music this morning and talking to Dr. Wesley Ferreira um, about his new recording programs or recording projects. So we played a piece from his uh, Madison Avenue. This is a sonata for B-flat and clarinet, B-flat clarinet and piano by Nikola Rizanovic. Um So, Dr. Ferreira, if the clarinet has a role or a niche in the musical world, what do you think it is? Well, I think, uh, you know, historically, uh, every instrument has their niche. Uh, so the clarinet, um, whether it be in quote-unquote classical music uh, with sonatas and concertos, really orchestral playing, um, being a member of the orchestra, there's a there's a role that the clarinet fills, and, and composers throughout through the centuries have a pretty good understanding of what the clarinet does well, just acoustically, and, and what color it has in the orchestra, what, uh, again, who it blends with, those type of things. Uh, certainly, uh, in more recent times, the clarinet is a big part of jazz music, and, uh, you know, with the likes of Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw that you played earlier, um, a really popular instrument. The clarinet um, can do things um, like bends and smears. You know, you heard that in this last track we just heard, kind of one of those smears, made famous, of course, with uh, the Rhapsody in Blue, the opening by Gershwin. Um, so uh, it it lends itself well to, to jazz music, um, um, it's really popular in the Balkans as well. In uh, that last track that we just heard too, is uh, the composer sometimes refers to it as Bul- uh, Bulgarian blues as well. So hmm. um, that kind of folk music. Uh, one of the concertos you guys played earlier uh, had a lot of those klezmer. The Hakola el- concerto. That's right, klezmer elements. I think the clarinet's really song-like. Um, it's it's. Uh, Composers have often said that it's one of the more lyrical and more most like the voice, the human voice of any instrument. And so uh, it does that pretty well. It's got a wide range. So from its lowest note to its really highest note is over three octaves. Um, and so it's pretty versatile. So does it have a niche? It certainly does in orchestral jazz worlds and folk music. Uh, and I'm really excited with uh um, with composers and performers who are trying to find a new niche for the clarinet, like what can it do going forward um, with different sounds, uh, blending clarinets with electronics, that sort of thing. And that's kind of some of what you're doing with your new projects, right? Yeah, I'm always exploring those things. I'm always exploring uh, what can I, how can I push my limits and do something that's new, hasn't been done before, that'll make people excited, make people think through my clarinet. Yeah. So a lot of your new music is still, even though it's not traditional classical music, is still probably thought of by most people as the classical genre. Um, With that being said, do you think that classical music is gaining any strength with the general public? Well, um, there's two sides to look at it for sure. I think many people would say no. I think that uh, in the last 30 to 40 years, classical music has decreased in popularity. Uh, some would point to, one, maybe the record industry and how people aren't really buying uh, classical recordings. Um, you know, orchestras, many orchestras uh, have been closing down or are facing financial difficulty because the public is not necessarily supporting them. Um, but on the flip side... Um, Last point about the decline too is that music education in the schools isn't uh, doesn't always seem supported. Um, 
You know, when we talk about the STEM research, uh, the STEM idea, you know, it doesn't include the arts. And that's why a lot of uh, a lot of folks are really wanting to change STEM into STEAM, where you re- include the A. And so there are there are a lot of people who, who believe that arts, in particular music, needs to be taught in the schools. That's how you're going to get uh, a real love of music. But, of course, music's all around us. So um, probably more than ever, music is all around us in every part of our life. So the flip side of it is that, look, there are people who love music, just love music. And I find the people who, the folks who... Um, really are just big music fans appreciate classical music. Even if they don't know very much about it, they were never really um, taught about it, they don't really listen to it, but they're really into music, they appreciate classical music. And I think that's that's the important thing. Um, I think there are a lot of organizations and a lot of people who are uh, bringing quote-unquote classical music into the quote-unquote mainstream with things <laughs> like the use of technology, whether it be... Um, uh, you know, using uh, uh, video, uh, using online platforms, um, uh, you know, for example, the Metropolitan Opera, they now show their operas in the movie theaters. And so it's, I think the classical music world is really doing well to reach out to, to more of the mainstream. I think that'll, uh, that'll be good for, for, um, for classical music. So uh, to answer your question, um, is it gaining popularity? I I'm not sure, but I'm. I think, I think that the future will always be great for classical music. Well, that's that's really good to hear. Um, if I can actually ask one follow-up question on one of your last points about introducing technology um, with music, you did a concert recently that you called "Clarinet in the Digital Age," um, and if you can, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have the ability now to reach out across oceans uh, with the use of technology. And so what I did with that project is I had anyone, the audience, uh, choose the repertoire that I was going to perform. So uh, online, I invited people to vote. Uh, I pitted two pieces against each other. For example, the the Brahms first sonata that we heard earlier today versus this Brahms second sonata. And then uh, I picked pieces from different eras uh, up until the present day. And uh, people were able to go online to my website. That's uh, wesleyferreira.com. And, um, and they would then be able to listen to clips of, of these pieces, and then they would pick. And so essentially, almost right up until a month or two before my recital, I didn't know what I was going to play, what I was going <laughs> to perform. And it was really based on the popularity of those pieces. Then when the, the actual performance day came, I... Um, I had uh, up on the balcony of the organ recital hall here at uh, University Center of the Arts, in, uh, Colorado State. I had a, like a, a live, um, a live social media section in the balcony where people could tweet, Facebook, just their real time interactions with what they were hearing on the pieces. Now, these tweets and uh, posts were then fed live onto a screen on stage. So as I was performing, if someone made a comment. Um, then it would appear on the screen. You know, how, how are they feeling about it? I also we also live streamed the event, so we had people from um, from all over watching, and they could again comment in. So it was really interactive that way, and it was just my way of getting what I was doing here out, uh, reaching a wider audience. Sounds like a good way to go, since it seems everyone is pretty connected nowadays. Um, would you say that there's any piece that you think really is bringing classical? to the mainstream that you'd like us to play right now? Well, I think any time um, 
you play music that's accessible to people. And what I mean accessible is just what they're familiar with, you know. Um, there were pieces on my Madison Avenue CD that I might say are a little uh, less accessible. And when I say why, why would it be less accessible? Maybe it's more dissonant sounding. Um, the, the, the new techniques that I might use on the clarinet, like multiphonics, which is playing two pitches at once. It's a little strange sounding the first time you hear it. But um, on that CD, I also have pieces that are going to be um, really accessible and recognizable to people. Like uh, there's a track called Tre Rotazione, which is uh, by Roberto Cognazzo. And it's a piece for clarinet, B-flat clarinet, the bass clarinet. And, and piano, and it's based on themes from the music uh, of uh, Nino, Ro- uh, Nino Rota, his uh, movie score. So uh, in this piece, you just hear a lot of themes from movies, and of course, that's quite accessible to everyone. All right, so we'll take a listen to that, and even though people won't like know the themes per se, they'll feel that they know them, right? Oh yeah, I think so. I think... Uh, I think they're just going to be very recognizable, like the, the progressions in the piece.
we're just here at the end of the coffee house where we've been interviewing Dr. Wesley Ferreira at, from the Colorado State University School of Music. And he's been telling us all about his wonderful clarinet playing. We just heard Tre Rotazian, um, which was on his album Madison Avenue. And you probably noticed there were two clarinets there. One was the standard B-flat clarinet. The other was the bass clarinet mm-hmm. played by Copper Ferreira, who is Dr. Ferreira's wife. And she is a fabulous clarinetist in her own right. Oh, yes. So, Dr. Ferreira, are there any final words you have to say? Well, I'll just say it's really great to be part of the program that features the clarinet. You know, uh, you just mentioned that my wife is also a clarinetist, and we met through the clarinet, and uh, clarinet's been a huge part of my life, obviously, continues to be, so it's really great to be part of a radio program this morning that features that instrument. Thank you very much. Uh, So right before we we leave you here, I just want to ask one more question. Um, To all those aspiring musicians out there, aspiring clarinetists, classical musicians, um, how do you become this successful? Well, you know, I'd say the the one of the biggest things um, is to just it's the motto that I have here uh, in my life, but also my clarinet studio, which is the motto of press on, which is the idea of of you're going to have obstacles in your life. Um, you're you're, you're going to have uh, setbacks, but it's the people who keep moving forward and overcome those setbacks and continue to keep their eyes on their goal, continue to press on. Those are the ones who ultimately make it in the end. And so that would be my biggest bit of advice, not just for aspiring clarinetists, but um, uh, anyone in life. All, All right. right. Well, those are very wise words for, as you said, everyone in life. And... I just want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about your success. Thanks so much for having me. Once again, we here at the Coffee House would like to thank Dr. Ferreira for coming on the program back last year. If you'd like to hear more of his work or get to know him as a person, you can check out his website at www.wesleyferreira.com or on Facebook, either by following the Colorado State University Clarinet Studio page or his own Wesley Ferreira Clarinetist. Our recordings today were recorded by uh, Dr. Ferreira on the album Madison Avenue and his upcoming album uh, Madison Avenue released on the Potenza Music label. And our recording of Also Sprock Zarathustra was performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. If you'd like to get in touch with the Coffee House, you can do so at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com or by following our Facebook page. That's just The Coffee House. Thank you very much for listening, and we will join you next time. Thank you.